Welcome to the BT Focus podcast dedicated to the behavior technician experience and the delivery of ABA services. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the BT Focus podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaminsky, and today we conclude the final of a three-part collaboration series in partnership with our other Centria clinical podcast initiatives. Uh, today, I want to introduce you to a new feed that we've launched called the Three Host Contingency Podcast, which centers around all of the different clinical initiatives that we're rolling out throughout the organization. Uh, the term is taken from the, the behavior analytic term, uh, the three-term contingency, which is referring to the antecedents, the things that precede a behavior, uh, the the behavior itself, and then the consequence. Um, and so in this podcast setting, the antecedent is what's the problem that we're trying to solve? What's the area that we're trying to provide greater supports in across the organization? The behavior will be the conversation itself. So Timothy Yeager is going to be joined by our other clinical vice presidents of performance and innovation, and Boardman and James Macon. The consequence is what we're hoping you as a listener will take away from it. And, and what is the change that we're looking to bring about throughout the organization as a result of these initiatives? And finally, if we can add a fourth term, if you will, the fourth term is the motivation, the why. Um, and, and really throughout all of these, you are that fourth term as, as, the, as the audience, as a team member that we're looking to support throughout all of these organizations as we look to um, enhance uh, the supports that we provide through, for our clinicians, for our behavior technicians, and, and for our families that we're pri privileged to serve. So uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, John Austin is our, our first uh, guest on the podcast. Uh, he's does phenomenal work in the area of performance coaching. This conversation is going to be centered around a new team meeting structure that we're rolling out throughout the organization for our behavior technicians, for our clinicians, for our regional clinical directors. Uh, if you want to learn more about John's work, uh, I encourage you to check out um, his, his website at uh, reachingresults.com. Really, really great conversation. Uh, John does an amazing job of, of distilling really um, uh, applicable takeaways for, for everyone, um, things that you can put into practice right away, um, all derived from our science. So enjoy this conversation, and, and I, I hope you subscribe to the feed uh, and look forward to uh, much more exciting things to come in the weeks ahead. Take care. Yes, we're brought up around the world to blame. Like, that's our go-to mechanism. But if you want to change behavior, if you want to understand people, you need to come at, come at it from a, a different angle and come at it from a place of understanding instead of blame. And like, that's what behavior analysis can do more than anything else. Like, that's the power of behavior analysis. That's how we can save the world, so to speak, with behavior analysis. You know, I mean, blame is the source of war, fighting, political problems, death, famine, all kinds of things that are horrible around the world. And yes, but it's also the source of bad things in your organization. Welcome to the Three Host Contingency, behavior analytic conversations that transition from the MO to the consequence. I'm Timothy Yeager, Vice President of Clinical Curriculum and Quality, and just one of the three hosts to this contingency. But don't get it twisted. We are modern behavior analysts and understand that three terms is rarely enough. There may be a fifth term, our organization, the context, the rules. There might be nth terms, as Sidman said. But most importantly, is you, our listeners. You're our fourth term. You set the motivational conditions. You guys set the stage for this show. We want to bring value, communicate what we are working on, why we are doing so, and be informed by leaders along the way. Each episode, we want to hear from you and then give you some practical takeaways that make your job a little easier and a little more effective. Welcome to the Three Host Contingency, recorded at the Centria Healthcare Podcast Studios.
before we jump into our first podcast, I thought it might be important for me to break it down from the MO to the consequence. Each and every episode, we're transitioning through four segments. We're going to start with the motivating operation. We're going to talk about the why, the current context with which we operate, the current deprivation conditions that we're trying to address. Then we're going to transition to the antecedent. What are those specific stimuli that we're trying to manipulate, change, put in place, cross our organization? That's going to lead into the conversation, a talk with a current leader, thought leader, researcher in our field that can really inform the behaviors and the consequence, which takes us to a conversation about what those practical takeaways are that can lead to significant change in your practice, in our fields, and across our organization. And like any behavior analyst, I can't do this alone. So I'm joined by co-hosts Ann Boardman and James Macon, two vice presidents of clinical performance and innovation here at Century Autism. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. First introduced by Jack Michael in 1982, motivating operation is an environmental variable that A, alters the effectiveness of some stimulus, object, or event as a reinforcer, the value altering effect, and B, alters the current frequency of the behavior that has been reinforced by that stimulus, object, or event, the behavior altering effect. I thought for this first episode, we can talk a little about ourselves, who we are, and what we're trying to accomplish with the three host contingency. So, Anne, let's start, let's start with you. Sure. What do you want to know? How, how'd you start in the field of behavior analysis? Yeah, I started back in 2009. I went to Western Michigan University. I was actually a dietetics major first. Um, I wanted to go into nutrition. thought it was really interesting and then realized I wasn't cut out for any type of chemistry class or mm. organic chemistry and decided to switch to psych, which I didn't realize what a great program Western Michigan had uh, actually until graduate school. Went to Western, was studied psychology. Um, I took more of the like OBM practicum route. So you could do two different routes uh, within Western. So um, I worked a little bit with um, Dr. Heather McGee and John Austin and um, really started to like systems. But being undergraduate, you just it's like such a concept that you don't really understand until you get into like a larger corporation mm-hmm. or agency. So, uh, yeah, I, that's how I got into the field. And then um went to graduate school thinking that I would go into OBM and didn't just went strictly into applied behavior analysis and worked at CARD in San Diego and moved back to Detroit and got a job at Centria. Your first job at Centria, what was it? I was a behavioral consultant. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's the title reserved for people with degrees and not passing the exam or was this a different title back then? So it was before I passed my BCBA exam. Yeah. So I was hired in. It's technically a a qualified health, a QBHP is the acronym that they use in in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was studying for my boards and then passed and became a full BCBA, able to practice with all funding sources. Um, And that was back in 2014. So I've been here for six years now. Wow. And James, how'd you get in the field? Well, by chance, I decided I wanted to go to Western Michigan University, uh, and this is back in 2001, and uh, I, I was doing the psych route, kind of like Ann. My first kind of behavioral class, I remember um, it was a Dick Malott class, Principles of Behavior, and he walks in there on day one and he says, well... Um, I know a lot of you are here because you're interested uh, in psychology. And if you think that this is going to be like standing behind a mirror uh, or one way mirror and diagnosing people with schizophrenia, uh, you're in the wrong class. Uh, Go go over to that professor's uh, program uh, because this is going to be a very different experience uh, and it's going to be incredibly difficult. And we are going to basically test you and work you every single uh, every single week. And it was pretty scary the way he described it. Uh, but uh, I stayed and kind of fell in love with this idea of a, a science of behavior. 
uh, and I, I kind of tried to take as much ABA classes as I could. Uh, much like Ann, I, I did this OBM uh, track as well, uh, TA'd for John Austin. Uh, and just like this, like I said, this, uh, this science of the behavior that you could engineer systems, you could engineer behavior was um, just fascinating to me. I ended up doing a, an autism uh, track as well, but I, I always thought I'd be uh, more OBM. Um, eventually, I, I went off to grad school at University of Cincinnati, and I, I worked in different applications of behavior analysis, um, whether it's behavior reduction in, in kind of residential facilities or uh, early intervention. But uh, ultimately, I think that systems approach, how you how you make sure whether you're the, the frontline staff uh, performing with the kid uh, or you're uh, you're responsible, you're the director uh, overseeing this this unit. All of those things have to work in unison. And that's kind of what drew me to behavior analysis. Philosophically, like this understanding of like determinism is um, something that I kind of geek out at. And it's to me quite fascinating that you guys both just like stumbled into Western Michigan. Like at some point you have to step back and look at your life and say, damn, that was a pretty awesome opportunity, right? Like it's not like you stumbled into some, you know, podunk university that doesn't know what behavior analysis is. Like the fact that you stumbled into that program at that time, you know, set your, your life up in a, in a path that would be completely different if you would have walked into a different program at a different you know, local university. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't know any better. Like, yeah. I had no idea that it was like we were learning behavior analysis. I just thought that was psychology. Like, I didn't realize that there was other branches of psych. I thought, you know, ABA was it, but there is other branches yeah. out there. Oh, it to totally spoiled me because everywhere I went, it was different. Yep. Uh, yeah. Like th this isn't how we would do it in at Western or Kalamazoo. Mm -hmm. Every other place I ever went outside of Kalamazoo, um, you, you almost feel like you're on an island. Like you didn't have an entire ecosystem that was behaviorally driven. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. I get that. My grad program when I walked in was like a 40 year old machine that had been rolling. And like I just got plugged into a system churning out really good quality behavior analysts and after that i thought i could go try to re recreate that and realize that like it takes 40 years of work to get to that point and you kind of feel like um an island is a really good example for me i, I stumbled into the program i was a i was trying to get my degree in mathematics um engineering and had some like some transformative like personal experiences where i i saw some like value in like therapy and psychology and um, thought, you know, maybe I can go back to school and become a school psychologist and help some kids out. So I go to Fresno State University and they have a, a solid undergrad ABA program and the school psychology program is really like, it has a big ABA component to it. And so Dr. Wilson, who's over the school psych program there says, you know, you need to take some ABA courses. You need to get some experience in schools. It's hard to get into this master's program, but if you do those things, you know, it'll help your application. So I take this ABA course from Dr. Marianne Jackson, who had just graduated from, from University of Nevada, Reno in ABA. Um, and she taught a course that should have been a graduate co level course, the rigor with which she had. I want to say it's Palmer and Donahoe, like a learning text which eventually becomes like one of the graduate textbooks in, in that program. And she set this contingency where it was the midterm was 40% of your grade. Homework was 10% of your grade and your final was 50% of your grade. And so it was pretty much relying on these two big tests that cover the entire book. Well, maybe not be the best strategy for teaching. Looking back on it, what it did do is it sets this occasion for me to actually read my first ever textbook. <laughs> like I, you know, wasn't one that would actually do homework. I would, you know, learn through lectures and, and trying to skate by. I read that entire textbook, took notes, and actually came to understand that like this analytical perspective that I had with mathematics and engineering actually works in describing human behavior. At the same time, I was taking this placement in a school as a special education paraeducator and just started to fall in love with how this could actually apply to learning and the science of teaching. That transitions into a, a hope and a prayer when I apply to, to go to teacher's college and study under Dr. Greer and somehow I got in, moved to New York City, 
and just really fell in love with the science at that point and um, was hooked. Oddly, I'm here in Detroit. Never thought I would move to Michigan and work next to you guys, but I'm, I'm quite excited I am here. I think your stories, guys, kind of really transition nicely into what we want to talk about today. And it's an initiative that we're rolling out across our organization in how do we set up structures in a behavior analytical way to really develop a clinical, strengthen a clinical culture to communicate effectively across you know thousands of technicians and, and clinicians, you know, across you know many states in our country. And how we do it in a way that's data-driven, feedback-driven, and really sets the stage for a lot more, many more initiatives that we want to roll out. So I thought maybe, Anne, you could start us off with why meetings and, and why a structure and what are we trying to accomplish as an organization? I always revert, revert back to when I was a behavior technician out doing in-home therapy, getting supervised by my BCBA, but maybe she or he would come twice a month. We would review programs. There wasn't any real dialogue or growth opportunities. I felt like there were great BCBAs, um, but I never got that that leadership or coaching that I was seeking uh, for like the next stage of my career. Also, having a my husband is not in the field, so and no close friends are within the field. I have friends now at Centria, but just being able to talk about the the case that I'm working on, some barriers that I might have encountered, as well as like the really awesome things that my client has done. I found that it was always difficult to to talk to other people that weren't behavior techs or behavior therapists because they just didn't have the same appreciation that I did and they didn't really have the full understanding. So with that said, um, I feel like the, our field just struggles with building relationships with their supervisors, uh, disseminating important topics that uh, a company wants to be able to drive. Um, we need to have a structure within the field and within BCBAs and um, behavior technicians where we can disseminate information. Uh, we can make sure that they feel supported, that they're part of a team, that they're not on an island and isolated just to two clients in home um, where they're just dealing with families and a, a child with autism. But I really wanted to make sure that we had more of a community um, and a culture around our field staff and for them to feel that support from a leader and to help develop their growth and continuing education for them. Um, when you think about the components of that, James, and, and how we would be successful in rolling something like that as an organization, that really speaks to like some of your background and, and, and passions in like systems and work. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit to our clinicians who might possibly just see the work that we do as ABA is only for kids with autism or only in direct work. And so I was hoping maybe you could build on that. Yeah, would would be happy to. Um, you know, when you when you look at OBM, organizational behavior management, uh, within that you have this subspecialty called behavioral systems analysis, and the idea is I can I can take this complex organization uh, and break it down into its component responses, much like you do with a, a task analysis, uh, and within that that assessment you can identify where are these um, interlocking contingencies where a supervisor and a behavior technician might interact. And even beyond that, with, with a regional clinical director and an area vice president. Um, but when we specifically call out and engineer these relationships uh, between I'm the supervisor uh, and I'm going to have this, this feedback mechanism for the behavior technician, uh, you're engineering some sort of uh, outcome or contingency there. Uh, and I, I would say, bar none, I can't think of any exceptions across any ABA company uh, in the country or world. The most important uh, position uh, is the behavior technician. They're the one interfacing and actually running that programming with the client. 
Uh, so to have a, a system where we can communicate quickly uh, with that behavior technician uh, and empower them uh, or provide tools or feedbacks in a consistent, systematic way are, I would say, crucial uh, for, for any organization. Uh, with Centria being a large ABA provider, um, it becomes more difficult, right? We're, we're not just 20 uh, BCBAs or clinicians that we're all in a room and talking to each other. Uh, when we're across multiple states and multiple areas, um, the, the work becomes more difficult. So having this systematic approach uh, for how we communicate uh, from the top down, from our, our clinical leadership uh, to the frontline behavior technicians uh, is critical to ensure that they've got the right uh, tools and that they're receiving the right feedback and reinforcement. So true because you know, the challenges that we have as an organization, what we're trying to accomplish through this is exactly that. It's like, how do we you know, identify areas that we want to improve? And then what's the mechanism to disseminate that information, disseminate trainings, communications in a way that's effective, um, in a way that like, has a measurable impact on outcomes with clients? And prior to rolling this out, we really didn't have that type of structure. If we, if we see the relationship between the clinician and the technician as one of the most vital relationships that we have as an organization, and we see the, the role of the technician as being the most pivotal in driving client outcomes, as an organization, what we have to do is really set the stage for that relationship to occur and to, to be built upon, right? And so that's kind of what we're trying to accomplish with this is like, can we develop a structure you know, a metaphor, can we develop a dance floor for our technicians and our clinicians to dance, right? Like, can we set this, the stage and the requirements and, and so that they can build on that relationship? To me, what's hard though is the relationship part, right? Like we, we can set the, the parameters with which this occurs, but actually doing the work of building those relationships and through leadership development and coaching isn't just a structure that we roll out. It's a, it's a process. It's going to take a lot of time as a skill set to, de to be developed. Yeah, I would, I would say even leadership um, is kind of this different repertoire of skills, uh, right? Like when, when you're in graduate school or on undergraduate and you're learning about the science of behavior, you can become an excellent uh, behavior analyst. Uh, but learning leadership or, or how to develop relationships uh, is something different. And I would say probably early on in my career, because it wasn't conceptualized in a behavior analytic way, I'd almost shrug off uh, anything about leadership. Uh, but there's been a lot of focus uh, within our field about what is leadership and how do we kind of engineer it or the behaviors uh, within it. So um, focusing on that for clinicians or behavior technicians uh, to become better leaders is, is something that I think, like you said, it's a skill set that we've got to teach and, and reinforce. Yeah. And with that said, I think be a better listener for our BCBAs. I think that um, we're used to always just directing, uh, you know, the skill acquisition programs and interventions. Um, but like, when do you just sit down and you listen to your behavior technician? You're truly supporting them. You're hearing about a really hard week that they had. Um, that's how you build a relationship. You need to be able to communicate, talk, be open with your behavior technicians. Um, so it's not just a system, it's a relationship. So both of those points kind of really segue nicely into a conversation that I had with one of your guys' former mentors, John Austin. He's coming into the organization here at Century. He's going to be leading a five-part leadership series um, to really you know, build upon the, the structure that we're rolling out and really help develop our clinicians um, as leaders. He's going to be talking about like what is leadership from a behavior analytic perspective. He's going to be talking about a, a construct called psychological safety. How do you create that? We're talking about giving and receiving feedback, having difficult conversations, and the role of coaching as a as a as a leader. And so I sat down with John yesterday to talk a little bit about about the things that you've guys have uh, um, uh, mentioned right now. And a couple things, knowing that you guys worked for him, I'm a little jealous because every time I talk to him, I just leave fired up, ready to like 
be a better leader, be a better person. When you listen to it, you may hear as if it's a therapy session because a lot of it is like some self-disclosure of me as like, here's some shortcomings that I have as a leader. Here's some things I failed in. Um, but to me, it's really humbling knowing that like, um, there's people like Dr. Austin who's out there and, and helping and supporting. And I'm really excited about the work that he's going to be doing with our staff. Yeah, that is really exciting to have him. Uh, he, he's come before and given uh, one of our, our clinical summits uh, presented on it. And it's just exciting to have kind of um, the engagement of here's what leadership is uh, from this behavior analytic lens. And here's something you can do today that's going to drive uh, and change how you, you practice as a behavior analyst. So uh, we're really excited to have him. Conversation. Well, thanks for joining me, John. I really appreciate taking the time. You know, we've had a few conversations up into this point. And it's always left me motivated. So I was hoping that it would have the same impact on the people that listen to this show. Great. Thanks for having me. To adequately set the stage, I thought we could talk a little bit about your history. I know you look more. How did you get in this field? When I went to college, I was studying psychology because I my guidance counselor told me I'd be good at it in high school. <laughs> you know, after three years of taking psychology, I found it interesting. I was also taking philosophy. I found it interesting, but it wasn't very useful. Like probably going to be working at McDonald's after college if I didn't do something different. And then I took, uh, I took a behavioral psychology course um, with a guy named Chris Anderson. That all changed in like one day. He was, you know, he talked about how to solve problems. He talked about how to change behavior. He talked about how to how to do good in the world and how to save the world with behavior analysis. I was hooked, man. That was it. That undergrad experience eventually leads you down a path to graduate school. You eventually find yourself at Western Michigan. Can you talk a little bit about your like your experiences at Western Michigan and, and your research, you know, interests? I'll just say one more thing. Like the 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 direction of my research and writing and practice, born out of the way I grew up. My mom was a single mom and she raised two boys and she worked, you know, three jobs, minimum wage jobs to like pay the bills. And no one in my family or an extended family even knew anything about college. And so I was the only, only person in my family to go to college. And like so I was surrounded by all these people who who I loved and who had big hearts, just wanted to earn enough money to pay the bills and to put food on their table and stuff. And they were many of, in many cases, they were just like serially abused in their jobs by terrible bosses and terrible work environments that were unsafe or just um, threatening. And, and there would, it just caused so much anxiety and pain and suffering that I could see that it caused me to like, I knew there had to be a better way. And so like my why and all the work that I've done think has been to create a more effective work environment because I mean, like we all spend so much time at work and it doesn't have to be horrible. In fact, it can be positively transformational, you know, like it can be a, it can be a really positive experience where there's tons of growth and their friendships and close relationships and, you know, challenge and learning and right. And like, so that's how it should be. I think, you know, really <clears throat> the work that I did at Western started around Kind of how do we teach leaders and, and managers to change behavior and to solve problems at work in a productive, analytical, positive way? If I had to characterize everything that I've done, it's really been that. Some of our clinicians, all they know is behavior analysis. It's the work they do with children with autism. I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about how does behavior science, how, how that transition for you into like leadership development, coaching and working with language-able adults. You know, behavioral principles translate 100%. Uh, it's just the tactics and the techniques that need to be adapted, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. That's the way that I think about it, at least. I mean, when I teach behavioral science, I call it behavioral science usually for the broader world. When I teach, you know, in, in an organization that has, you know, for people who have no background at all in behavior analysis or behavioral science or psychology or anything like that, I'm, I'm teaching them what I call laws of behavior. It's a law of behavior that mm -hmm. we behave in accordance with our environment. That's the main driver of our behavior. Like that, I consider, I think it's safe to consider that a law. And, uh, you know, another law of behavior is that 
positive reinforcement works to increase behavior, right? And so, like, if you think about things on that level, what are the what are the known aspects of behavior? I mean, we know a lot about you know speaking to the behavioral using the behavioral language here. You know, positive reinforcement. We know a lot about stimulus control. We know a lot about what drives behavior in terms of consequences and antecedents and things like that. Tricky part, I think, comes in translating that into tactics. Like, what does that mean? I do? Mm-hmm. Right, because like for some humans, an M and M is a really good reinforcer, you know, and like for others, it's, it's a slap in the face mm-hmm. on the context, right? So like um, that's what we have to. I think that's what we have to learn. So you know, there are there are lots and lots of books on leadership that have those tactics in it, but don't really tie it to the behavioral science, you know. And so I think our job is to as behavior analysts and my job is to think about all that other stuff that's out there too. And like, what, what of that is usable or could be usable on the, under the right circumstances and how do we talk about it? So like, like for instance, you know um, let's take uh, feedback uh, for like a simple example that we all have to deal with. Like in, you know, there's the behavioral science or behavior analysis view that I came up with, which was like, no, you just have to be super honest and pinpointed behavioral and then like let the person deal with it. Like that's their problem <laughs> kind of thing. You know? <laughs> but there's a whole other world outside of behavior analysis that has dealt with like, how do you say these things to maintain the person's mm-hmm. integrity, you know, or self-perception or whatever you want to call it, like to not hurt their feelings basically, because that is a thing. Mm-hmm. And we can't just ignore it, right? So, like, I think uh, I think what what I try to do is just bring together the things that that work in a way that people can use them. You know, so we need to talk when we're talking about feedback. We need to talk about what's your relationship with the person before you ever open your mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, like if that if you don't have an effective relationship, then you need to do that before you can expect to change their behavior by giving honest feedback. Part of like my transitions in my careers were informed by uh, the book, like the first 90 days. That was a, a really healthy book for me that was given to me after my first transition in a job that didn't go so well. And one of the reasons why it didn't go so well, you know, I think is that the skills that the skills that I utilized or, you know, what I saw my job was, you know, as a behavior analyst, let's say, when I went into like a director role, I couldn't be the same person, right? I had to like develop a new skill set. And I think about this a lot with, uh, you might be able to see, I have a, a mug over there that has a picture of Fred Keller and it talks about um, his adaptation of Skinner's quote, the organism's always right, which is like the student is always right. He's not lazy, you know, he's not unmotivated, he's not sick. You know, I think about that a lot with like our, you know, when we're working in a leadership position is that, you know, when I'm working directly with a client, you know, whether it's a student, a student of autism, whoever, I have a little bit more empathy for that, that individual, right? And I have a little bit more understanding of, you know, at, at that time, the work that I could do and how it could impact. And so I would never blame the client, right? But I often found myself and I often hear people blaming their employees, right? Like, and the same principles, as you described, govern both situations, but you know, oftentimes, especially for me and the struggles I've had previously is like, as a leader, sometimes I escape those situations just by blaming, right? Like, it's not me, it's them. And yet the same principles govern both situations, but the tactics have to shift, right? And like, how you build rapport with the child with autism is much different than how you build rapport, you know, from like a topography standpoint, how you build rapport with, you know, one of your employees. And that was a real struggle for me. I think it's a real struggle for a lot of our behavior analysts who are trained in one specific skill set and then have to find themselves leading a group of technicians. I agree. Trained in the deal. And, you know, it's also, uh, it's not only that um, leaders blame their employees, it's that employees blame the leaders too. Mm-hmm. Like it's a worldwide phenomenon I did a talk for the BACB. They did a series of videos, instructional kind of videos, like overview videos. And I did the OBM talk. It was a really cool experience. You know, there were a bunch of experts there giving talks on the same day. We all flew down to Atlanta. And Janet Twyman was there and, and Pat Fryman and 
Matt Norman, a lot of other folks. Um, Ray Miltenberger was there, and like I mean, it was like all stars, man. It was mm-hmm. really cool, um, and I was super thankful to get to take a take part in it. Point here: the story is that I was talking to Pat Fryman about about this, about how what he does and what I do were similar, and we found that the overlap was like we're both trying to teach people that yes, we're brought up around the world to blame, like that's our go-to mechanism, but if you want to change behavior, if you want to understand people, you need to come at, come at it from a, a different angle and come at it from a place of understanding instead of blame. Like that's what behavior analysis can do more than anything else. Like that's the power of behavior analysis. That's how we can save the world, so to speak, with behavior analysis. You know, I mean, blame is the source of war, fighting, political problems, death famine, all kinds of things that are horrible around the world. And yes, it's also the source of bad things in your organization, wherever they are. You know, so like, I think, I think that's the, the switch that we're trying to flip. That's powerful. I continue as a leader, continue to check myself and blaming. Sometimes it's easy to take feedback personal, not like a, like a Feedback in the sense of like your boss sitting you down and providing you like some, you know, guidance or instruction, but more like I rolled out a system. I got people emailing me, asking me questions about something that I thought was clear to them. It should have been clear. Right. And why are you emailing me? And it's easy to like, just like take that personal and instead of taking a step back and be like, I have some understanding as a functional, you know, contextualist, like it's not um, having the impact that I wanted. So it's my fault, not theirs. And I, I shouldn't um, react. Um, in yeah. our last leadership series, uh, Linda LeBlanc talks about like, have, like acting like a pinball machine or like a steady like. And whereas, you know, at times I find myself in that pinball, just like constantly reacting, right? Like notifications, yeah. emails, people calling me uh, and not being able to, as a leader, being calm and just being able to have some understanding and perspective taken through that process. That's a great metaphor. I love it. And, you know, I, I think of it as, um, is who would you rather work for? Mm. Would you rather work for somebody who's, you know, late for meetings, um, constantly busy, doesn't listen, checks their phone in the middle of a conversation. Um, we can name the pinball behaviors, you know, <laughs> yep. uh, doesn't respond to your emails. Um, whatever we can get the list goes on and on right or would you rather work for someone who's calm and thoughtful and insightful when you ask for feedback or maybe even when you don't ask for feedback who's kind and caring but yet is strong and makes uh the right decision because they're thinking about it i mean it's clear yeah yeah (laughs) you know that that actually reminds me of janet twyman so janet twyman when i was going to grad school to me was like the rock star that I want, you know, like she, she graduated from the same grad program that I went to. And she worked quite a bit of time at the, this, the school that I was working at, um, you know, her impact with like head sprout and, and a lot of the work that she was doing. Um, to me, I, I looked at her as like someone that I wanted to be. And anytime I ever talked to her, you know, the first time it was like, I just randomly walked up to her at ABI and just said, Hey, I go to Columbia, read all your work, um, you know, implementing some tactics that you, you published. And at that moment, it just felt like we were in a tunnel and all she was, is t- she was present talking to me. No one else mattered. Nothing else mattered. And I never met her before. And from that moment, every conversation was very similar. And I can just remember like being impacted on that is the type of skill set that I ever want to get to on talking to people. Like, I felt so incredibly important. She had no clue who I was at that first conversation. It was clear to me that that was a type of leadership quality that at some point I needed to learn how to develop. And it took me a long time to get there. And I'm still not there. Um, but it was pretty evident. That is a great story. I love it. And it's, it's, uh, it's so true. I mean, if you've ever been in the presence of a, a very effective leader, you have that experience. It's, and it doesn't happen as often as it should. We used to hold these annual conferences for my company for reaching results. And we would invite, use it as a chance to invite whoever we wanted. Janet Twyman was at several of them. And uh, one, of, one of my colleagues had worked with um, a, uh, like a senior leader who ran a whole 
division of Bechtel, um, the largest construction company in the world. This guy came in and um, had seen me once, knew, remembered my name, knew my family's names. Uh, <laughs> immediately, yep. it was like we were friends, you know. And he was talking with someone, one of my other colleagues, and his phone kept ringing. He was holding it in his hand. His phone kept ringing. And she looked down and noticed that it was the prime minister of some Middle Eastern country. <laughs> and he, he put it on pause. And she was like, are you sure you don't have to take that? <laughs> he was like, no. I mean, this is a phone. I can call him back. But this moment that we're having is the only thing that I have to give to you. Mm. you know, like, this is my attention. Is what I have to give as a as a leader as a person, and like that that's powerful, man. Incredibly, and for our behavior analysts that are that are listening, those are the moments they have with their technicians, right? When they, they see their technician, you know, once a week, and you know, their technicians in the field, oftentimes alone with a client, you know, for a week before they see their technician or their clinician. And how do we maximize those moments to build that relationship, to create safety, right? To develop them as, as you know, individuals in our, our company and practitioners in our field um, in the midst of emails from your boss, you know, fires from other, you know, situations, other clients, you know, situations or, you know, COVID exposures. How do you like maximize those moments when you don't get a lot of them i'm sure it's something we'll be talking about more um i thought maybe we could dive in a little bit to that that is a great it's a great question makes me think of some of the things i want to talk about around leadership when we get to that in the speaker series thinking about leadership as it's much more than this but like at least one element involves you know, three kind of, if you were to think about like a Venn diagram, you know, from where <laughs> the things that many of us hated on all those tests, <laughs> the three circles, you know, if you were to think about three overlapping circles, you know, one is self-management, one is relationship management, relationships with others, and the, the, other, and the final one is performance management. And so if you were to think about in that one hour that you have a week, or whatever that time period is a week. How are you doing? What do you, what are you focused on? You know, I mean, first of all, in order to be able to show up calm and thoughtful, your self management has to be together, right? Like if you're not managing your own self, your own behaviors, and you're you're on top of your work, you've thought about what you're going to say before you get there. You're not late. You're not running crazy and all that, that's all self-management. Mm. Um, so you can't succeed if you don't have that together. Or some of us still do, despite the fact that we're running around like our hair, with our hair on fire, you know, but, um, but it, you're doing it against the odds. Yep. Right. So like, that's, that's kind of what comes to mind there is, um, you know, the best thing you can do for your team is probably uh, to get your, own behavior in line, your self-management together around time, around thinking. One of my one of my colleagues who runs an ABA agency is uh, working with their senior leaders on um, carving out focus time. So their entire leadership team carves out three hours of focus time a week at the same time, like the entire all the leaders. <laughs> <laughs> think about what you can do with that. You know, if you yeah. have three hours every week or one, 30 minutes even, you know, for some of us where you can just think about what you need to do and be strategic. So I think that's what's required in those meetings, those weekly meetings, like some kind of strategy. Don't just roll in there and just say whatever comes to mind. You've got to have some idea of what you want to say. You have to, have to have, I think, thought about it. Most of us, if we spend even just 10 minutes thinking about what we're going to say dramatically increases the chances of success. No, I like how you said those three circles because, you know, self-management is a huge area that you know, as an organization, we just focused with our clinical directors. We, we went through this LeBlanc training series and she talked about getting things done. And, you know, I have my, my book here that I'm working through 
uh, I've, I've worked in the system, used that system before. And what I find is, uh, I think what jumped out the most about those three circles, though, is um, the relationship management piece. I, I think as behavior analysts, you know, self-management, you know, we can put down a list, a checklist of some sorts, and then start, like, managing our behavior and put some contingencies in place. Um, performance management, we have tools that we can use that are, you know, a lot of times just black or white and, like, that can drive expectations for this program a technician's doing or this program a technician's doing or our technician's utilization of hours and how they're scheduling or not scheduling. But the relationship management part, and maybe I'm overgeneralizing because it's, it's always been a struggle for me. It informs feedback. It sets the occasion for feedback to be more effective. I'm kind of speaking off the cuff here, but like that fulcrum between a statement that could be punishing or reinforcing really sits upon the relationship that you have with your people. I don't think we spend enough time talking and thinking through that, especially as as an organization, we are in the business of developing people to support clients. And we need to spend more time focusing in on that. I agree completely. Um, In fact, one of my, one of my colleagues that I, that I uh, worked with uh, for years um, used to call it the the steps before step one. Mm -hmm. So like we think of step one is like, you know, pinpoint the problem and then we can the blah 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 and then we do this and then we do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? But no, there's steps before that that required in order for and, sure. Uh, every one of us has probably been in the situation where you know um you hear you hear a set of words from somebody and you think like what a jerk or whatever, right? And then you hear the exact same set of words from someone who you respect. And you think, wow, thank you for spending the time to think about that. You know, that you're thanking them, you know, yeah. uh, and it's all it's it's that fulcrum you're talking about that, uh, the, you know, the feedback effectiveness hinges on the relationship. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. It angers me because so like <laughs> in my past and even today, so one of my colleagues, Dr. Joanne Powell, um, she was in our grad program, which is a couple of years ahead of me. Um, a good friend, a great person, um, could, could say the exact same things that I say to people, right? And the people that I'm saying it to them would curse at me. <laughs> the per- people that she said it to would like thank her for her time and be so appreciative and would like go above and beyond behavior analysis, you know, from a verbal behaviors perspective, like we just call those autoplytics, right? It's just, like, it's, it's just like this one big word that describes everything, but there's so much more to it. And that's what I, I really appreciate in our conversations and the time you spend talking about like outside sources of information to help develop these skill sets, because functionally we may be able to define them, the content around it. There's a whole lot of people out there that are, that are studying that work. Oh, yeah. I mean, I came across two important concepts that I talk about all the time that were not behavior analysis at all because of this, because of this focus on the relationships. Um, behavioral integrity is one of them that I talk about quite a bit. That is stu- There's some papers on it, but no behavior analysts have studied it. I mean, it's say-do correspondence at some level, but it's more than that. Um, and then uh, psychological safety, the other one. And there's very, I mean, in fact, I've had behavior analysts say like, this is, a, it's a label, man. You can't like, why are you even talking about this? It's not important. I'm like, well, you clearly haven't been on a, met that many teams then because, <laughs> you know, 93% of people surveyed say they can't, they don't feel like they can tell the truth or say what's on their mind on at least one of their teams at work. If you own that business, that would be a complete utter failure, right? Like, be like a knife in the heart if you... It was if it was your organization to to have people saying they can't say what's on their mind in your meetings. Let's talk more about that because psychological safety is like the second topic of our five part series that, that you're going to be leading. So can can you define psychological safety for us? Yeah, psychological safety is the belief that you can say what's on your mind without fear of retribution or without fear of you know threat or punishment. That might be real or imagined, whatever it is, the context that you're in, you can, you can speak up. Mm. And, and so the value of that 
clear and obvious and superficial value is that you get more diverse ideas. You know, when you're in a meeting and you're saying, all right, we're going to roll X, Y, and Z out, we're going to do this. The people who are hearing it often can tell you the reasons why it won't work in a million years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but will they tell you is the question. Right. <laughs> they themselves have to engage in some self-management too, where, you know, they've got to say it in a way that is respectful and honest you know, so like that's an element to this, but you've got to create the right environment for people to feel like they can say it no matter what. Mm. And behavior analysts push back against that because there's there's some direct acting contingencies there. If you have a history with that person, right? There's like this transformation of motivating operations or some derived relations that that fall in there that you know I can definitely see how you know certain contexts create conditions to where that type of behavior be punished. It like transitions back to like our, our BCBAs, right? So BCBAs go to school, they get a master's degree. There's some context in which they think or are taught to think that now they have the answers, right? And so then you go into a relationship with a technician who does not have that type of training experience, but also has some practical experience in working directly with this client for many hours every single week. And being able to create that psychologically safe like environment for that technician to be able to say what's going on, you know, push back against a behavior intervention plan that like may on paper be effective, but in practice is difficult. And as a BCBA, not feel threatened by that feedback. That's a big step, I think, for a lot of um, people in their growth as leaders is yeah. just being able to, to manage that in a time where now I have a degree and now I'm in this position and I'm supposed to be seen as a leader and I should have all the answers. Yeah, what will my boss think if you know they hear that I created a behavior program that's hard to implement? Yep. Or what? I, or or that or that I'm managing somebody. I'm failing to manage their behavior, but you know, by like not being able to coach them through and successfully implementing that program or whatever, it reflects negatively on me. So of course, I don't want to hear that. Yeah. Um, so it's perfectly understandable for sure. I mean, I think that it requires a level of. I want to say maturity, but that's not really the right word. It's it's because that sounds judgmental, and I don't mean it in a judgmental way. But I think that it requires a level of security mm-hmm. with your own knowledge and abilities, right? And your your positioning in the company too, right? Like, I mean, if you feel under threat and judged at every corner that you might be fired, why would you ever? solicit negative feedback about what you're doing right it's a much bigger issue than just being nice to each other and feel comfortable in the the midst of the conversation there's all context around it so i would think that that context is and how you describe psychological safety coming from the top down that relationship doesn't exist in isolation it exists within a context of an organization which exists within relationship with their boss with their boss and the boss above to where that's a, that's a cultural type of shift that organization has to go through to yeah. create those, those relationships. I, I would also add that, I mean, cause I work with a lot of folks who are in the middle of whatever organization, you know, and they're not at the top, they're not at the bottom, so to speak. They're a middle manager and they're like, well, I am completely helpless to change all this stuff. Like I can't just roll into the CEO's office and tell them they they're creating an unsafe environment. And I say, yeah, don't do that. I agree. But what you can do is think about what part of the business or organization do you influence? In fact, write it down. So here's something that if you're listening, you can do. Put yourself as a stick figure in the middle letter or your name in the middle of a page and then around it in a circle, write down all the names of people who you influence directly on your day-to-day, in your day-to-day operations. And now think about what can you do to make it feel safer for them? What can you say and do to make it safer for them? And right, and then start thinking, make a little list of, of the actions that you can. And then you get back to self-management. Like, will you actually do those things or not? And you could ask them. You could ask for their feedback. You could ask how that how you could make it safer. People will look at you a little weird, you know, but you could you have to maybe frame the question up properly and stuff, but you can start getting feedback from them as well 
and you can make a difference that way. But that only works if you believe in the value of creating a safe space for people really hearing their views. You know, we have a five-part series that we're launching. We're going to be talking about leadership, psychological safety, giving and receiving feedback, having difficult conversations and coaching. And we've touched a little bit on those. I thought to end it, you could talk a little bit like what should our clinicians expect by attending, you know, the series? How do you think, you know, they may be different as a function of going through these and what can we look forward to? My goal is to put some material in front of you that is not theoretical, but is, that is practical. And that you should come away from each of these with something to go and try in your real life, in your work life, in your home life, wherever. It'll be relevant for all of that. So my, my vision is practical information, some of which you might have heard before, you know, especially if you've got education and behavior analysis. It will look familiar and maybe you feel like you know it. But I, uh, I guess I'll ask for your forgiveness in that and thinking that like sometimes the best progress can be made by going back to the basics and the fundamentals and really kind of making sure that you're doing all the right things or as many of them as possible. So I think that's what, that's what you should expect. I think you and I had some fun going down some rabbit holes and it got a little theoretical mm-hmm. uh, from time to time. I, I try to you know, use simple language that you know, any of us use in everyday language and talk about this stuff that way. So I think that's what you can expect. And then after each one, like I said, I'll, I'll want you to go away and try something. You know, in your notes, you don't have to write everything down. You just have to take away one or two things that you might want to try. I would end with going back to something that we discussed during this time here in this recording. Come into the meeting, spend, spend a few minutes thinking about what you want. And I'm going to ask you at the start, let's see if you've thought about it, like 10 minutes even. What do you want to get out of it? Because you're not just the victim of me pushing information on you. You are the, you're the actor in this whole thing, right? And so it's only going to work if you're actively looking for something to apply. Well, I'm looking forward to it, John. Thanks for taking the time to join me today. I'm excited to see the impact this has and and the continued development of our, our staff as leaders. So thank you. Yeah, me too. You're welcome. I really loved the interview, loved his mission when he was talking through about uh, what he was trying to do at Western Michigan, making sure that he is teaching about a safe and effective work environment, making sure that the workplace isn't threatening. I guess like, let's just open the floor. Like, have you guys ever felt like you worked in a threatening workplace or what were some situations that you found yourself in not being able to open up to supervisors or, or leadership? For me, I can remember a few different jobs where we talked about psychological safety. What really resonated with me was insecurity. Like when I know that I'm not doing a good job and I'm in an environment that's not supporting that, I can think back to one of my accounting jobs to where every time the boss's door shut, I thought I was going to get fired. I just always thought that something was about to happen. I can think about my job as a technician and just feeling not safe and not supported in homes where I was already uncomfortable working with clients. I didn't have the skill set to, to help, you know, being spit at, having feces thrown at me, not being able to support this child that continues to cry. And just thinking like my mental health was suffering. I wasn't being successful. I wasn't helping this kid. And I had a supervisor that was showing up like once a month. Um, and I had just started the job. I quit pretty soon after and just realized like, I hated this. I ended up like not enjoying life for whatever reason. You know, started to blame the kids as, it was, as if it was their fault and not the fact that I was in a system that wasn't supportive with skill sets that weren't adequate. I was miserable. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that that's experience that's not unique to me. And in a field where 66% of our technicians turn over, um, I bet it's a whole lot more common. And, and to me, that's like one of the driving things that we're trying to do. And like I continue to tap back into that feeling of, we have to help that person that's having those feelings mm-hmm. in those moments throughout our country. Yeah. Right I think like when you said like the insecurity, I remember feeling that same way as a behavior technician, wanting to ask my supervisor a question or the why behind a specific program, but not feeling like I had a relationship with that BCBA or they might make me feel 
dumb for asking that question when I really just wanted to know the why behind um, what we were doing before I was in graduate school. So that speaks a lot to kind of the the way BCBAs um, supervise their behavior technicians. I think it's the way any of us supervise, right? Because I, I can think of moments this week where I've responded in a way that failed, right? And you know that that I have in certain situations to where like Linda LeBlanc talked about like, is your mind like a pinball or is it like a steady body of water, right? To where steady body of water can like take that pinball, have some ripples and then go right back to stillness. There's times when I'm a pinball and you don't want to email me when I'm a pinball machine because like I will just just like fire right back and <laughs> and not even think about it and then just realize and, and like one of our employees called me out and was like man this is like you want feedback you ain't acting as if you want feedback and he was right I wasn't I failed in that moment right and so had to acknowledge that had to apologize had to have a meeting and, and talk through that and uh to me it's like a negative reinforcement lifestyle just like just checking and just doing all these fires and just like taking things off the list and not being thoughtful and intentional and um, just responding quickly without thought. Yeah. It requires intention. Yep. Um, you know, like a default, if you're just reacting, um, you can do a lot of things by accident. Uh, I think taking the time uh, to be thoughtful and intentional about how is this other person going to experience this? Uh, like Ann mentioned, I think it can be very intimidating if you're a behavior technician. Uh, you're only seeing the, the BCBA uh, maybe once a week uh, or once every couple of weeks and, and not knowing the why, being afraid to bring something up. Um, I, I think being uh, being heard is very powerful. Uh, and and I, I think for us, training those different skill sets, reinforcing it, making part of our culture is how we can make a, a dent uh, in this field. Because you're absolutely right, Tim. It, it, this is not a problem that's unique to Centria. Uh, this is a, an issue um, largely a, across the country uh, and, and even beyond that. Um, I think that we're seeing uh, momentum with kind of the RBT certification, uh, trying to create a profession of, of direct support professionals. Um, and, and this is one pivotal piece in how we can make a, an impact uh, to change that relationship and ultimately change outcomes related to it so along those lines you're talking about being intentional um every moment that our supervising clinician is interacting with a technician has to be done with intent and like you have to have a purpose and so i thought james you could talk a little bit about like what should be that intention when a, a clinician is walking into a house or walking into a center and about to sit down with a, a supervision session um, with a technician yeah, I, I think, you know, if you're a BCPA walking um, into a, a supervision session, you're preparing to talk to that behavior technician. Think about it from their lens. You know, what have they experienced this week? What are they struggling with? Um, how can you help support them? And from the parent's perspective as well, we don't always have control of the environment uh, as much as we would like to. And think about those limitations as, and how they would relate to how we design our behavior intervention plan. Because ultimately, if that technician uh, doesn't have all of, all of those tools or control, they're going to experience some challenges. And I think it's very often way too simple to think that they're failing to do something. When in reality, it's an environmental constraint. But understanding that perspective means that I'm going to go in there and say, hey, how can I help rather than trying to blame them or think it's it's a mistake that they've made. And I really like that because I think with that, the shift there that I hear shifting from like, how can I get this technician to do what I'm wanting them to do versus how can I support them in being better at their job? And like, how can I, from their perspective, be a resource to make them better at their job? So one's like a development, the other one's like a compliance issue. Yeah. And I mean, thinking about performance management, it goes back to feedback. If, if, the, if the technician's not doing something that you would um, want them to do and follow through with, maybe it's you as a supervisor that's not giving enough feedback or specific enough feedback for them to be able to improve their performance. Could be the environment, but it could be you not providing that feedback 
well enough for them to understand what you want them to follow through with. One of the things that jumped out at me about the conversation with John was the emphasis on relationship when providing feedback. If you've built rapport, if you have a relationship that's built on psychological safety and your technician or your employee feels like you care about their performance, you care about them as individuals, you're there to support them, then your feedback is more likely to be seen as um, something that's going to change behavior versus something that's going to punish behavior, Mm -hmm. right? And I've had those experiences with people that I don't have a solid relationship where I, I say things intended to function as feedback to increase a behavior or shift a behavior. And ultimately what it's seen as like some type of punishing feedback that not effective at all. And to me, what was, I think, most powerful about the, the conversation and, and what made me think about most when I was talking with John was how do we effectively build those relationships? And in a time where we are being pulled in so many directions in the middle of this conversation right now, Anne and James both look down at a phone, right? Like, so like in a time where we're like constantly being pulled, how do we silence that when we're talking with people and let them know, like our technicians know that for this hour, I'm here to help support you. I remember, um, Jenny Ward, she was one of our executive clinical directors. She, we went around and had like resolutions, New Year's resolutions we discussed. And she said she just wanted to set the intention of dedicating her whole self to her behavior tech and that client when she went into supervision. And that was her mission. You know, she's going to support 100%. She's not going to get bogged down by emails, distractions, text messages. But for that hour, like you said, or two hours, whatever it is, 100%, I am dedicated to you. And I think that I've always tried to take that that advice from Jenny and put it in when I am supervising clients. Love that. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Three Hosts Contingency recorded at the Centria Healthcare Podcast Studios. I really enjoyed talking to Dr. Austin about what it takes to be a leader, especially like to focus on relationship management. And with that, our relationship with you is important. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell a friend that you think may enjoy the show. And if you have a moment, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. See you next time. BT Focus listeners, thanks for joining us for today's episode. Now, we want to hear from you. Drop us a line at our Google Voice account at 248-215-2464 if you have any thoughts, ideas, or questions. You may even hear them on the air. Or drop us a message at btfocus at centriahealthcare.com. Until next time.